Welcome to the JD Power Travel Podcast. I'm Michael Vermillion with JD Power, and with me today are Mike Taylor, who leads our travel practice, and Jenny Corwin, who's our lead analyst for travel. So, Mike and Jenny, uh, welcome. Hello. Hello. So, I thought for the podcast um, this time we would lead off uh, with the airlines. And uh, obviously, uh, Mike, uh, in the news uh, over the past uh, week or so, has been uh, the Boeing 737 MAX aircraft uh, and um, the, the crash in Ethiopia, and then the subsequent um, actions that have been taken by regulators and airlines around the world. Uh, so um, so what's, what's the J.D. Power take on this uh, situation in terms of um, uh, the travel uh, experience and and uh, how um, how both travelers and brands should be uh, thinking about this. Okay. Well, first off is a question of safety, um, which is sort of an unwritten assumption for every survey that an airline takes, and of course any survey that JD Power takes, simply because no one is going to get on an unsafe aircraft, and certainly a pilot uh, is not going to fly one, and a, and a mechanic isn't going to authorize one to go on the air. So it's always assumed that you're you know you're going to get on a safe flight. And the FAA has a, in fact, the entire aviation history has a fantastic record. 2017, there was only one, in fact, there were zero deaths in 2017 uh, that were attributed to commercial aircraft. Uh, all the deaths, there were 59 of them in 2017, all for, um, you know, business and uh, <clears throat> carriage and uh, shipping um, aircraft uh, crashes. So they've had, they have a tremendous, that's with billions of people flying every year. And uh, the most recent death in America uh, in an aircraft was the, you know, we had mentioned this on a previous podcast, uh, this poor woman who had gotten uh, sucked out through the uh, broken glass of a window. And that was the only death that particular year in the United States. So there is a tremendous history of safety. There's also a tremendous history of reverse engineering, um, Boeing, Airbus, and all the other manufacturers being able to fix whatever the problem is. Uh, but as far as the 737 MAX goes, uh, there were relatively few of those of aircraft flying, only about 50 or so. In our JD Power data, they, you know, we didn't get to collect enough evaluations on the actual MAX aircraft to really give it a score, even though it appears that people who did fly it uh, appear to like the aircraft. There's a lot to like about the aircraft. It's a, especially a, a very nice operations-type aircraft, and it flies longer than your normal 737, hence the name MAX. And that allows these route programmers at the airlines to reach markets uh, more efficiently and more uh, cost-effectively. Um, so it, it maximizes the ability of the, air, of the airline to provide service in different markets. Um, as far as the airlines themselves, there's, you know, Southwest had taken quite a few of them. I think about almost two dozen of those aircraft. And, uh, and they're, of course, currently grounded. But, you know, there's about 755 aircraft in the uh, Southwest fleet. So it's not a big impact on them. It's bigger on Air Canada. About 15% of their fleet is that 737 MAX variation, either the 800 or the 900. I think most of them are in 800s. And so that is affecting them the most. And I was speaking them with them actually yesterday uh, about this topic, and they're basically treating it like a, a snow emergency, like they've had some planes that were simply snowbound and couldn't get out of an airport. So they're adjusting, and they think it'll take about another week for everything to smooth out. Uh, however, on the other hand, it is a drain on their on everyone's bottom line because those aircraft are multi-hundred million dollar investments that are currently not producing any revenue. So that is definitely going to be the problem. But eventually, the FAA, Boeing... 
and the engineers will get together with the fix because it is a relatively good and airworthy aircraft. We just had some unusual circumstances, and it's it's really useless to speculate uh, until the FAA comes out with their findings and Boeing engineer engineers um, analyze exactly what has gone wrong on those two crashes in Ethiopia, uh, and I can't remember the other crash site. Okay. Uh, th- Thanks, Mike. So, so just in terms of um, what travelers should be expecting here um, over the next uh, few weeks, are we likely to see um, um, in, the, the impacts actually get worse or get better, stay about the same? No. Oh, it'll probably get better. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the key problem here is that the load factor on every other aircraft is in the high 80s, low 90s. So there aren't a lot of seats in which to reaccommodate people. Um, and so you'll probably find that that middle seat is even more uh, likely to be occupied, um, which will decrease some people's satisfaction. Um, but, you know, it, 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 these routes will just simply disappear from the schedule until those aircraft become available. So when you're shopping for it, you may not get the exact flight that you want to get where you want to on an exact time, but you'll probably be accommodated within a day or two. Um, so I don't really see a tremendous impact. It's, it's more of an impact on the financial bottom line of the airlines themselves. Okay, thanks, Mike. Jenny, switching to hotels, uh, we're continuing to see disruption in the hotel industry, uh, especially on the booking side. And so a couple of recent developments, uh, Google has now um, fully launched a hotel search site with the booking capability. And then also uh, Airbnb um, announced the acquisition of Hotel Tonight. So so what, what is the... What's the J.D. Power read on that? What are the implications for the hotel brands and also for the... Um, uh, the guest experience. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting time for for brands, right? Um, the launch of of Google Hotels, really, uh, if it if it does anything like Google Flights, which is really become a major distribution channel, um, it means that hotels have to get really good at Google. Like brands do have to, you know, really. Obviously, they've been monitoring their product, their placement in the Google searches, but. Um, I think it's it's going to be a bit of a challenge for OTAs uh, because you can book directly from from Google now, but it's also going to be a challenge for hotels to really navigate this new environment, uh, much with paying much more attention to it. Uh, you know, for guests, I, I think it's it's probably going to be great, right? It gives them one more way, a little bit more transparency into pricing. Another challenge for hotels that. Um, this Google Hotels has a, a deals option. It shows you, you know, trends in pricing. It shows you um, what kinds of discount you're getting based on how the hotel was priced previously. Um, and it seems to be very selective. It'll narrow down a search from 300 hotels to six um, very quickly. Uh, so to, to make sure that you're showing up in those deal flags is, is going to be a challenge for, for hoteliers. Um, and then the Airbnb acquisition of Hotels Tonight just represents, um, they've been trying to really get into the independent hotel game for a while. And this is really the first big coup, I think, in terms of um, getting more independent hotels on their platform. So Airbnb is becoming more than just an alternative lodging. It is definitely getting into the uh, booking space uh, and it's it's competing with OTAs and it's really going to be interesting to see how that works out. But for consumers, um, it's just another option, right? Um, it's going to give them more local options. 
It's going to give them more, more similar to these are the hotels that were generally going to be competing with an Airbnb in the first place. Um, most independent boutique hotels that have that local authentic flavor um, oftentimes are the ones that are competing. So it'll be interesting to see how it works out. But for consumers, it's you know, just another option. And it's maybe a little confusing in the beginning. But uh, in the end, I think once people get it, it's going to work out well for them. Okay, thanks, Jenny. Mike, turning to the rental car part of the travel uh, industry, uh, recently we've seen some regulators at a couple um, around a couple of the airports begin to crack down on this new uh, concept of a peer-to-peer -peer car rental um, um, capability, and, and I, th I think you know one of the companies is called Turo. So, so. What do we expect to see happen here? Are these uh, are these companies um, uh, going to survive this regulatory um, uh, crackdown? Uh, what are the implications for uh, the airports and also for the rental car companies, but of course also for the uh, the traveler? Well, I'll start with the airport side of things because this I think has the most impact um, for these folks who are basically accessing the frontage to do some business, however it's being done, and these peer-to-peer -peer rentals for vehicles. But over the years in the North American Airport study at J.D. Power, we've seen that the impact on satisfaction uh, for the access part of it, actually getting to the airport and getting into the ticket lobby, um, you know, negotiating yourself to the airport, parking or getting dropped off, and then uh, going past the frontage and into the uh, building itself is increasingly more important to satisfaction because there's just every month uh, the most common headline uh, for an airport press release office is, you know, airport sets new passenger volume record. And it's also they've tried over the years, uh, as most people have noticed, that we, we see more consolidated rental car facilities. Uh, for one thing, it frees up parking spaces next to the airport where the airport can re make revenues. Also, it takes buses off of that frontage uh, because there's just so many people trying to get to the airport um, that it's really clogging up uh, everything and making people mm, slightly more nervous and decreasing their time in which they're, um, you know, got available to do other things such as get through security, you know, eat something, shop for something, relax those kinds of things. So the Turo problem, and I, I don't want to call Turo out uh, per, uh, you know, by name, there's other peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, rental car companies. I don't know how much they're impacting it, but you know, these folks are kind of not playing by the rules uh, that everybody's established for car rentals, which is you've got to have permission of the airport to access the frontage, and you've got to pay some kind of access fee um, to do business on the airport property. And that appears to be the rub <laughs> that we've got here is because uh, apparently the Turo folks or the person running the car isn't heating that. They're going where the business is, um, exactly like you would see in Uber or Lyft. And Uber and Lyft are also paying those fees. So it's really a problem for the airport um, uh, as far as you know, clogging up the access because they've tried to clear it out as much as possible by rerouting uh, bus traffic for rental car companies. Uh, as far as the rental car companies, this isn't a significant part of the uh, of their business yet. It is growing, but it's growing in a really small uh, base. So any kind of incremental uh, increase uh, seems like a big percentage, but it's not a huge uh, issue just yet. But then again, we didn't think that TNC companies, Uber, Lyft, and all those would be a big deal either. But those grow, grew certainly into big problems for the rental car companies and for the airports themselves. Okay, thanks, Mike. So final topic on the digital side of travel. Uh, I think I first saw this in Nashville uh, 
and uh, I'm not sure actually um, which app it was, but it's it this idea or concept of um, being able to have uh, either food or retail uh, delivered to you uh, at the gate. Uh, so you could, uh, so, so for example, you could, if there's a restaurant and another terminal, uh, you can actually go onto the app, order from the restaurant, and then that, and then the food will be delivered to you at the gate. I uh, also recently saw this on the Portland Airport uh, website, uh, talking about a new app-based delivery service called At Your Gate. And if you go to the At Your Gate uh, website, you'll see they're currently in six uh, airports. So, so like, what is this a um, something that's short term, or is this a trend? Uh, why, why are we seeing this pop up, and how is it likely to? Um, benefit the traveler? What, what's the implication for the airport? Well, it is a long-term trend. Uh, this is just the latest uh, variation on a theme, which is that passengers are more likely to stay at their gate than do anything else when they, once they get through security. Um, and so bringing goods and services to them maximizes that non-aeronautical revenue that the airport really lives on these days. Um, parking is probably the biggest at the very at this particular moment uh, revenue non-aeronautical revenue generator for the airport, but food, beverage, and retail is either number one or number two at most airports, and of course maximizing that experience um, and also not having to move move from the gate and doing it all on your phone or uh, there's another service called On the Go that you've probably seen it at uh, many major airports where they have the um, mounted uh, iPads where you can order. But those on the go are mostly restaurants that are in that same terminal. So the variation on this theme is that I can, if it's if I'm in terminal A and the food I want is in terminal B, well, the food can come to me rather than the other way around. Uh, so, it, you know, again, it's just gonna be how much staff is gonna be dedicated to running this stuff around. Um, but as we see in the gig economy uh, studies that we do at JD Power, you know this is becoming more the norm. Um, the having the food delivered to you, no matter where it is, when you want it, and how you want it, and then paying it through the technology that's on your phone. So this are probably is going to be something that um, will increase satisfaction because I'm going to get the the food or retail uh, that I want, and I don't have to move from my seat to get it. So that so that wraps it up for for uh, for this podcast. Mike and Jenny, thanks for joining us today. You're quite welcome. And thanks to our listeners for joining as well. To learn more about the JD Power Travel Practice, please visit us on the web at jdpower.com/business. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>